0: Well, today we're talking about the pattern of the kingdom. And I was trying to find a good definition for the word pattern. I think we all know what it means, but I wanted to find a good, helpful definition. The the best one I could find was on Britannica Kids' website. So here it is. A pattern is something that happens or appears in a regular and repeated way. So we have patterns in math. We have patterns in nature. There's patterns in the weather in fact, one of the patterns we've noticed at our house, if the weather forecasters say there's a likely chance of wind, there's going to be a lot of wind. Right? There's almost always a lot of wind anyway, but when they say it's going to be a windy day, you know, brace yourself for wind. They usually know what they're talking about there. Uh, but today we're talking about the pattern of the kingdom as we look at the book of 2 Kings. And the book of 2 Kings is challenging because it covers Several hundred years of history. It includes the Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, a number of kings, and so I'll be honest with you. You know, packing it all into one sermon it was a challenge for me this past week. Some books, you know, you can do one sermon on a book. Some books are more challenging. Now, thankfully, the Book of Second Kings gives us a summary, so it's always nice when there's a summary that says this is what this book is about, and that's what we have in Second Kings chapter 17. So, if you would please turn there. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read 2 Kings 17, verses 7 through 18. And just a reminder, this is the very inspired Word of God. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal... And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage and this pattern that we see before us, I pray we would learn from the example for your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's the pattern. The beginning of the pattern is this. God blesses. Notice in verse 7 it says, when, when this occurred, this occurred. What's this a reference to? It's a reference to verse 6, which says, Assyria came and captured the northern kingdom, taking the Israelites away in exile to Assyria, And notice it says why. Why did this happen? Why did God do this? Because, verse 7, they sinned against the Lord their God. Notice the word Lord is in all caps. That that lets us know in Hebrew it's the word Yahweh. And Yahweh is a good reminder to us. This is the God who revealed Himself to Moses. This is the God who has gone in before them and delivered them from Egypt. Verse 7, they have this relationship with Him. He has saved them. Verse 8, we are reminded He's the God who drove out the nations before them so they could take the land and experience this blessing that He was providing for them. Notice this phrase, the Lord, their God. It's a phrase you see five times in this section. It has a very personal aspect to it. He's their God, their personal God. They know Him. He knows them. And it's a good reminder to us, the storyline of the Bible begins with God's blessing. It begins with God the Creator. It begins with paradise. It doesn't begin with sin. It doesn't begin with with death. It doesn't begin with evil. These things enter in, and, and we are born into the story. We're born into the middle of the story, and so we're born into a world that's marked by sin and death. And frustration. And so a lot of times we, we think the whole story is just marred by sin, but that's not the case. At the very beginning when God created, it was good. There was blessing. It was paradise. We talked about this last week. And so it's good for us to remind ourselves because we have a tendency to, to almost even blame God. Like, why are you allowing this? Why, 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 did you, why are you allowing this to happen to me in our world? And it's a good reminder. Just back up a little bit and look at the storyline. And remind yourselves, we're not here because it's not His fault that we're here where we are. Look at the storyline. Look at the big picture. It started with a good God who created a good world, and He created a people to live with Him, and where there's blessing and it's paradise. This is how the pattern begins. It's very important that we notice the beginning of the pattern. The second aspect to the pattern is we rebel there's rebellion, there's unraveling, we saw this last week, we said under Solomon, it looks like all the promises are aligning, it looks like the kingdom of God's about to be established, we're about to have paradise on earth all the promises are about to come to fruition, and then in no time at all it just unravels, and it's because of sin, and it's because of rebellion and we said it's the same pattern that we've seen over and over and over and we're getting tired of the pattern, aren't we? We saw it at the Garden of Eden, and we just see it over and over and over. Verse 7, once again, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. The word sin is the term that the Bible often uses. It it literally means to miss the mark. But I I think it's helpful to think of this sin in terms of rebellion because the word rebellion reminds us we're missing the mark against the king. We're missing the mark against one who is in authority over us. So it's not merely missing the mark like you know, shooting a bow and arrow. It's missing the mark in terms of going against, rebelling against the one who created us for the purpose of blessing and the one who gave us the standards and, and, and the means of, 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 of remaining in that blessed relationship. Notice verse 9. It says, the people of Israel did secretly... Against the Lord their God, things that were not right. We often think our sin is secretive. We often think it's hidden. Oftentimes, when we sin, we do it in a a private way. It's kind of in the dark, and no one knows. And we try to cover it up. But this is a good reminder to us God always knows, He always sees. He sees you always. In fact, we have this phrase, 18 times in the book of 2 Kings, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Though we think our sin is secretive, it's always before His sight. He always sees it. And this is the pattern. God's blessing, things are good, all is right. Our sin, our rebellion, and the unraveling of paradise. You know, if you, if you were to come to our house and spend much time at our house, there's a phrase that you'll hear repeated pretty frequently, and that is, this was just clean. <laughs> <laughs> this house was just clean. Like, we just cleaned this, right? We spent hours cleaning. What happened? Your bedroom was just cleaned. We just had you straighten it yesterday. It is a mess. It looks like a bomb went off in here. What happened? How is this possible? right? We, we, we had this little uh, counter space right next to our refrigerator in our kitchen, and it happens to be the place where everybody, when they walk in, they just kind of put the stuff in their pockets, there. you know, the papers, or do you all have a place like this in your house? And it just becomes chaos. And every once in a while, one of us will muster up the strength and we'll clean it and straighten it, you know, and we're real proud of it. And then it's like, it's no time at all. What happened here? We just straightened this up. What, what's going on here? And this is, the pattern of, uh, this is the pattern of the world. It's the pattern of the Bible. We move from order to chaos. We just got it ordered. We just, we just got it straight. And by the way, ordering it and straightening it takes a lot of time and energy. Like You've got to spend hours to get it clean and orderly and straight. And it takes a lot of effort. And it takes virtually no effort and no time to lead to chaos. It just happens like naturally. Like you just turn around and it's, it's in chaos. And this is the world we live in. God creates it. It's good. It's orderly. It's beautiful. And it's like you just turn around and all of a sudden it's the same pattern. It unravels. It's chaos. This is the second part of the pattern. Here's the third part of the pattern. God warns. Look at verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. God warns his people. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He doesn't say, you messed up. I'm through with you. It's over. He says, you messed up. I'm sending my prophet to you to warn you. To remind you you messed up and to remind you to return to me. The, the role of the prophet is not primarily a person who predicts the future. That's important to note. When you talk about a prophet, is there some element of prediction of the future? Yeah, sometimes. But it's a very minimal part of the role of the prophet. The role of the prophet is not primarily to come in and be a fun hater. You guys are having too much fun. I'm going to turn the music down. That's not the primary role of the prophet. The primary role of the prophet is not primarily a miracle worker, though there are some miracles that some of the prophets do. Well, then then what is the primary role of the prophet? He's basically a preacher. When you see prophet, think preacher. He's there to preach God's Word. And it's always a very similar message. It's it's sin and salvation, which is what every message should be about every time we preach. Sin and salvation. We've sinned, we've erred, you need to return to God and he'll save you, and he'll forgive you. Sin and salvation. Very simple message. In the book of 1 Kings, the main prophet is Elijah. In the book of 2 Kings, the main prophet is Elisha. One of my favorite stories of Elisha in 2 Kings, it's a very short story, it doesn't take very long, but it's a powerful story. The Syrian army is lining up against Israel, and Elisha's servant or protege gets scared as we naturally would if the enemy's lining up against you. And Elisha prays for him that his eyes will be opened so he can see. L- listen to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, he got a glimpse of the spiritual realm that we often can't see. We know it's there because the Bible tells us it's there. There's a spiritual realm, there's a spiritual aspect, God's armies, the angel armies, it's there. We know that, we believe that, the Bible tells us that, but we don't see it. So we often kind of forget, and we, we just know what we see. Like, I see what I see. This is I know what's there. I see it. But, but, but Elisha's servant got a glimpse of what's really there, and that's a good reminder to us. that There's something more behind the scenes that we don't see, and God is at work, and He's working for His people, and He's working for His purposes, and it's good to be reminded of that. There's a lot more going on that we don't even see. We know it's there. We don't see it. And therefore, there's some mystery there with that. But, but it says specifically that, that these armies were around Elisha. Why Elisha? Because Elisha is God's prophet, the prophet who is sent to warn. And so God's provision, God's army, God's angels are with Elisha, around Elisha, because he has this prophetic ministry, which is very simple, sin and salvation. And, and we see throughout the Bible, God raises up people to preach, to to, to, to speak. God's word, God's warning, you need to return. You're in sin. You need to turn from your sin. You need to return to God. This is the pattern that we see. Now let's talk about the fourth part of the pattern. We respond. Because, by the way, the prophet is always calling for a response. The Christian preacher is always calling for a response. It's not just, let me share this with you, it's interesting. It's, let me share this with you, you need to respond. So the fourth element here of the pattern is the response. Everybody responds. But the question is, how do you respond? And there's really two ways you can respond. The first way is to respond by hearing and repenting and returning and being restored. And that's what we're going to focus on when we look at the book of 2 Chronicles because that's the focus of 2 Chronicles. But we're now in 2 Kings, and the the emphasis in 2 Kings is the second kind of response which is the response that hears the warning and yet rejects it. Hears the warning and ignores it. Hears the warning and just continues forward in rebellion. And that's what we're focusing on because that's what the book of 2 Kings is about. I want to highlight there's two parts of this pattern of turning, of ignoring, of rejecting. There's two, there's two aspects that are involved. First aspect, there's a turning away from God and His Word. So when you hear the warning, you reject it. The first thing you do is you turn away from God. You turn away from His Word. Look with me, for example, at verse 14, chapter 17. It says, But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They would not listen to God. They wouldn't listen to His prophets. And it says the reason is because they were stubborn. Now that word stubborn, it doesn't just mean they didn't understand. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's a moral thing. Stubbornness is a moral problem. Their heart was hardened. And it says just like their fathers before them. Once again, it's the pattern. They followed the pattern of their fathers. They did not believe in the Lord their God. There was a heart problem that led to stubbornness. Look at verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. It's very strong language. They despised it. They hated God's statutes. They hated God's word. They hated God's covenant. What is God's covenant? Well, it includes his promises. Promises made to Abraham, promises made to David. It also includes his expectations. This is what I expect of you, demand of you. It also includes the consequences when his people don't live up to their end of the covenant. There are consequences. And God's people here, Israel, hated that. We don't want to hear the consequences. Don't tell us about the consequences of our sin. We like the prophets who come around and tell us everything's fine. We like the prophets who tell us we can keep living the way we're living and everything's fine. We don't like the prophets who come around with kind of that harsher tone and talk about God's expectations, and God's sin, and God's wrath. We like the prophets who come around and tell us, you know, God loves you, and He loves everyone, and everything's okay. Just live, keep living the way you are, and you'll be blessed, and you'll be fine. Those are the prophets we like who come around. And Jesus, by the way, points this out. He says, you reject me just like you've rejected all the prophets before me. There's a pattern. There's a pattern of rejecting the prophets of God. Why? Because they're speaking the truth of God. Which is what? A warning. Stop going down the path you're on. Come back, repent, come back to God and be blessed and have life. We don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear something that steps on my toes and challenges the direction I'm heading. I don't want to hear a message that tells me I got to start living differently. I don't want to hear a message that tells me I got to start thinking about things differently. I like the message that says everything's fine. Just keep going the way you are. You're fine. Look at verse 16. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. They abandoned all of them. They abandoned God's commands. They abandoned His Word. And therefore, when you abandon His commands and His Word, you abandon Him. It's not an option. There's no category of people who love God but hate His Word. The category doesn't exist. People might think it exists. It's himself, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. People who love Jesus are people who keep his word. Therefore, they got to know his word. And they keep his word. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, I really appreciate that you preach from the Bible. I really appreciate that you give biblical messages. And I almost always respond by saying, I honestly don't know what else to do. (laughs) That's all I know. Uh, It's the only method that makes any sense to me. uh, Because this is where the authority is found. I don't have any authority right? Who am I? The authority is in God's word. So my job as a preacher, as a pastor, as a teacher, is really simple. First of all, you start with the text, and that involves studying it. I got to go study it. Whatever it is, it may be a verse, it may be a paragraph, it could be a chapter. We're in a series right now where it's the book. Where I take the book, and I do the homework, and I do the work, and sometimes it's hard. But what am I doing? I'm trying to figure out what's the main point here. What's the point? And what are the subpoints? And then I bring that out and I bring that to you and I, and I show you and I explain. Here's the point. Let me show you where I see it. Turn to this verse. And I'm showing you what, how I got what I'm saying and the authority that I'm standing on is God's word. And then, you know, a faithful preacher is going to apply it. Here's what difference that makes for us. Living where we live, 2022, this is what difference that makes. But, you know, unfortunately, um, I don't fully understand it, but there are a lot of preachers who don't do this. And it always kind of shocks me. Like, why, why, are, you not, why are you not taking God's Word and just explaining it and applying it? Like, Why, why are you wasting your time doing other things? Because here's the problem with it. it. It may not be a person or a church that rejects the Bible, but over time, over the years, over decades, it, 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 if a church is not getting a steady dose of God's Word... Like And by that I mean, I've done the homework, I've, I've studied I know but here's the point of the text and now I'm going to explain it to you so you can read it and know how to read it and read it for yourself and know how to follow God's Word and apply God's Word. If a church isn't getting that, over time what's happening? They don't know the Word. And if you don't know the Word what does that mean? It means you don't know God. And over time you, you can almost develop kind of a distaste for God's Word. Though you don't, you don't think of yourself as being a person who rejects the Bible, but you haven't had a steady dose of it, you haven't had a steady diet of it. And so, you know, clearly you've got the more mainline, liberal churches that just outright reject the Bible. And so you're talking about false prophets, false teachers, reject the Bible, find ways to do all kinds of crazy stuff with it. And they'll even say, it says this, but we don't believe that. We're smarter than that. And by the way, those are churches that are in significant decline churches and denominations in significant decline. But you can also have, and there's a common pattern of more conservative-type churches that have a high view of the Bible. They say, this is God's Word, and yet they're not not going to it. They're not studying it. They're not taking the time to, to unpack it, to explain it, to apply it, to do the hard work. Why? Perhaps it's laziness. Perhaps it's favoring pragmatism. We, we think this works better than that. Perhaps it's just a person who's never seen it modeled, never learned it, never been trained. But over time, what that can create and does create is churches and denominations that, that really don't know the Word and therefore don't really know God and therefore are apt to reject it. So there's different ways to reject God and His Word. That's the point I'm making. And the point I'm making is, we have a natural pattern to do that. And we need to know that about ourselves. We are the type of people, and we're just following our fathers before us, as the text says, we have a natural pattern, a natural instinct to not place ourselves under God's Word so we're hearing it, so it's stepping on our toes, so it's affecting change in our lives, so we're becoming more like Christ. You have to, you have to, you have to place yourself under God's Word. So that means you've got to go to church, and you got to go to a church that says, we value this. Like, this is what we're doing week in and week out. So that you are being conformed to the image of Christ, knowing God's word, loving God's word. And this is the first step of the pattern it's a rejection of God and his word. But there's a second part to this. There's the second part, which is we turn to something or someone other than God. So this is really important. When you turn away from God and his word, you don't turn to a position that's neutral. We like to think that. I can be neutral on things, and I can think very objectively about things. If you turn from God and His Word, you are necessarily turning to something or someone else. And that's what Israel did, and that's the pattern. That's what happens. Look at verse 7. It says, they had feared other gods. See, that's a problem. Anytime you're, you fear something more than God Himself... You're concerned, you're fear, you're driven by something other than ultimately God Himself, you're you're in trouble. And this is the path they're going down. Look at verse 8. They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. They followed the patterns and the customs of the nations. They followed their gods. They broke the first commandment. God said, No other gods before me. When you go into the land, drive them out. No other gods. Me and me alone. So they're breaking the first commandment, but that's not the only commandment they break. Look at verses 9 through 11. The people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them and they did wicked things. So they're not only violating the first commandment by worshiping other gods, they're violating the second commandment by creating images and using images for their worship. And they're worshiping in places they're not supposed to worship. They were only supposed to worship in Jerusalem. That was the only prescribed place. But they set up all these other places for worship, and they refer to them as the high places. And they use these images, and I want you to notice they are images in their worship that they had learned from the foreign nations. So, this is a common pattern you see. And a lot of times, in Christians in worship, they tend to look to the world, they tend to look outside of the Bible to inform their worship. What should our worship look like? They'll look to the nations, they'll look to the foreign nations to learn from them, to learn from the world, and let that be what influences the worship rather than asking the question, what does the Bible say? we're supposed to be doing in worship. How does the Bible inform what we do and don't do in worship? So it's a common pattern that we just have to be aware of. God's people have a tendency to look outside of the Bible, to look to the world, to ask what should our worship look like? We have to be cautious about that. Verse 15. Look at this phrase. This is a powerful phrase. Right in the middle of verse 15. They went after false idols and became false. If you go after false idols, if you go after anything other than God, guess what? Not only are you worshiping something that's false, you become false because you were created to worship God. And so the NIV says it like this, they followed worthless idols and became worthless. Follow anything other than the one true and living God and you become worthless in the sense of not living consistently with what you were created for. Verse 16 Look halfway down, verse 16, 16b. And made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. So they, they literally created calves, which is what they did on Sinai. And they got punished for it, and now they've forgotten the lesson. It says they made an Asherah. What is that? It's a sensual Canaanite goddess. So there's a sexual element to it. They served Baal. It's a Canaanite God. It says they worshiped the, the host of heaven, the creation rather than the creator. All of idolatry, all of false worship boils down to worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It boils down to not giving thanks to the creator who created everything. And it's a little ironic. This past Thursday we had Thanksgiving and the whole country is all about giving thanks. But if you were to ask the question, to whom are you giving thanks? You know, there's all kinds of confusion to that answer. And we're the ones who understand well, who are we ultimately thankful to? We're ultimately thankful to the Creator. Right? We're not thankful to the creation. We're thankful to the Creator for the creation. And all false worship boils down to confusing the creation and the Creator and not giving all worship, all allegiance, all thanksgiving to, to the, the Creator. That's a powerful pattern. All blessings flow. We've got to be aware of it. The of teaching is, which they burned out of sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. They offered their children as sacrifices to the false gods. That's how committed they were to the false gods. Think about that. The people of Israel, God's people, turning from God, turning from God's word, turning to false animal world. Look at the animal kingdom. Even animals protect their own. Even animals defend their babies, right? And here they're sacrificing their children for the sake of false gods. And I can't help but think of the abortion industry in our day. We have people who are sacrificing their children. And we have people who are fighting for the, make, to make it legal in our country to sacrifice children. And it's a good good question to ask. Sacrifice our children to what end? For what purpose? So that I can pursue my own interests. I want to go to college. I want to have a career. I want to make money. I want to have the kind of job that I think I should have. And this child is going to get in the way. I'm going to sacrifice the child. Why? So I can do what I want to do. Money, college, career, a life that looks like the way I'd planned my life out this is nothing short of evil. And the Bible puts it in this category, verse 17. It puts it in the same category as divination, omens, selling themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. So here's the point. When you've been warned and you reject God and His Word, you're not neutral. You're turning away from God and you're turning to something else or someone else. And it's good to identify what is that thing or that person I'm inclined to turn toward? Because it's all of us. We all are naturally idolaters. So we need to look in the mirror and say, Chris, what are you naturally inclined to turn toward when you turn away from God? And I think for many of us, it's, the answer is it's the self. We turn to the self. And we live in a world that's telling us, you are your own little God. You are the center of the world for you. You do what's right for you. You live your truth, as Oprah, the great prophetess, would say, right? Just live your truth. What does that mean? It, it means, the claim is, there's no objective truth. There's no standard outside of you that you, have to, that you have to come under. That's what the Bible's saying. There's a standard outside of you, and you have to follow it. And if you don't, there's consequences. What's the message of the world? The message of the world, is there's no objective right or wrong. There's no standard you have to meet up to. The only thing that's right or wrong is is within you. You decide your truth. What's right for you? What's true for you? And the only thing wrong is to not live consistently with your truth. That's the great sin of the modern world. Just be authentic. That's the word be authentic, be yourself, follow your heart. I just want to point out that's the opposite of the message of the Bible. And I would argue if you're doing that 99.9% of the time, you're going against God and His Word. Following your heart usually means going against God's word. And so this is the pattern. The Bible tells us this is the pattern, our experience tells us this is the pattern. And this brings us to the fifth part of the pattern and that is God resp- God responds. Look at verse 17, chapter 17 verse 11. Right in the middle, 11b, they did wicked things provoking the Lord to anger. I want to focus on that phrase provoking the Lord to anger. You see that same phrase repeated in verse 17, provoking Him to anger. Here's the good news. God is slow to anger. But here's the reality. He will be provoked to anger. There is a point in time where He's no longer slow to anger. He's he's angry. He's provoked. And He's provoked because of wickedness. He's provoked because of sin. He's provoked because of rebellion. Say, so well, where do you see that? Look at verse 18. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So there are consequences for their sin. What are the consequences? Israel will be exiled to Assyria. Chapter 17, verse 6. It says Judah is left, but Judah is only left for 135 years, and then they'll be exiled. To Babylon. And it's a brutal scene. Uh, turn to chapter 25, 2 Kings chapter 25. Chapter 18 through 25 is, is about the southern kingdom Judah, which lasts a little longer than the northern kingdom Israel, probably because of some of the godly kings. But the the same fate that happens with Israel is the same fate that happens with with Judah, And the reason is because Judah follows the same pattern that the northern kingdom followed. So therefore, there's the same consequences. And look at what happens. It's brutal. Chapter 25, verse 6. Then they, Babylon, captured the king of Judah and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Look at verse nine. "And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down." So these awful things happen to Israel. These awful things happen to Judah. They happen because of God's judgment. It is God's judgment against His people, just as He had warned them. They provoked the Lord to anger. And in case you're saying, well, this is the Old Testament and this is Israel and things are different now and we're the church and living in a New Testament era, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, warning us. Romans 11, 20 through 22. They, Israel, were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So he says, look, God cut off the natural branches, Israel, because of their unbelief. Don't say, well, that was Israel and that would never happen to us because God loves us so much. He says, no. If he wasn't willing to spare the natural branches, he's not willing to spare you either. So don't have this mindset that I can just kind of presume on God's grace and do what I want. Instead, he says, continue in the faith. Stand fast through faith, verse 20. Continue in his kindness. Otherwise, verse 22, you too will be cut off. So this is an important question. What does it look like to stand fast through faith? What does it look like to continue in his kindness so that we're not cut off? We're going to come back and answer that question. But first, I want to, I want to continue the storyline of what happens with Judah, who's exiled, and they experience this brutal king. Right? So guess what happens? God remains faithful to his promises to Abraham and David. And the brutal king of Babylon dies and there's a new king who's raised up in Babylon, and he's a little kinder than the former king. And the way the book of Second Kings ends, the whole book is about <laughs> sin and unraveling and God's judgment. And the very end, the very end of the book, the king of Judah takes off his prison clothes, and he's clothed with normal clothes, and he's seated at the table of the king of Babylon. And he's able to sit at the table of the king of Babylon every day of his life. And it's just a small little way of saying, God's still in control. The whole thing's unraveling. You'd expect it's all over with, but there's a king. Now they're a far cry, they're a far cry from what it was like under Solomon. I mean, under Solomon, it's like it's about to happen, paradise, kingdom of God restored. And it kind of reminds me of shoots and ladders. You know, when you think you're about to get to the very end and cross the finish line, you're about to end and the game's gonna be over, and then you hit that slide and you go all the way back to the very beginning. And you say, oh no, you know, how much longer <laughs> is this going to go on? That's what we have here. Under Solomon, it's like we're at the finish line. It's about to happen. Paradise, kingdom, and the whole thing unravels. And we are a far, far, far cry from the promises being fulfilled because you've got Judah in exile. But God's still on the throne. God's still faithful. He raises up another king in Babylon. He's going to allow his people to return and rebuild And they're going to. And about 500 years later, Jesus is going to be born in the city of David, city of Bethlehem. He's of the tribe of Judah. He's a root of David. He's the lamp that will never go out in Jerusalem. And what's incredible about Jesus is that He always existed in perfect relationship with the Father. The Son and the Father always had perfect relationship, perfect blessing. And Jesus never sinned and therefore never had to be warned to return, right? But yet, think about this. Jesus was willing to be cut off and treated like the branches that were cut off. He was willing to take the curse that we deserve because of our sin. He was willing to be treated like the the rebellious one. For us, though we are the rebellious ones and though we deserve the wrath and the judgment, Jesus goes to the cross taking the wrath and the judgment. He deserved none of it, but He did it for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we become the righteousness of God? How, How do we get what Jesus did applied to us? Remember earlier I said there's kind of two steps that are involved in turning away from God, rejecting God. You turn from Him and you turn to something else. In a very similar way, how do you return? How do you get restored? How do you get forgiven? You identify whatever it is you're going after, the false God, whether it's the self or the world or whatever, the flesh. You identify it. This is the God that I've been going after. And guess what you do? You turn from it. You repent of it. You turn away from it. And in turning away from it, you turn to Christ the one who was cut off for you. You deserve to be. He doesn't, but he took it for you. So how do you get restored? You have to turn to him. How do you turn to him? Well, it involves turning away from whatever it is you're going after. It's like two sides of the same coin. Turn away from and turn to. And if you do, if you'll turn away from and turn to Christ in faith, you'll be forgiven you'll be restored, you'll you'll become adopted as sons and daughters, eating at God's table forever, have security, eternal life, and life. You'll be right with God. This This is how you become right with God. Now let's come back to that big question I asked earlier. How do I remain in the faith? How do I stay strong in the faith so that I'm not cut off the way Paul warns? How do I continue in God's kindness so that I'm not cut off? Guess what? It's the exact same thing you do to become right with God. You turn from and you turn to. You identify whatever it is you're going after. You turn from it. You repent of it. You turn to Christ. You trust in Him. You keep looking to Kim. You keep putting your faith in Him. So hear this morning the gracious Word of God. Hear this morning the gracious warning of God. Turn from sin, which leads to death. Turn to Christ, which leads to life. Stand forgiven at the cross. This is the pattern of the kingdom. Let's pray.